Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We celebrate two facts in the gospel, life and death. We celebrate life because we celebrate the life of Jesus, the real actual footprints that were imprinted into sand 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Those footprints were made by feet that belonged to a man who was and is also God. We believe that not like an interesting fable, fairy tale or myth, but as fact, the life of Jesus. He lived an earthly life here on our planet. And although now the tide has washed away those footprints, they're not erased from our memories. And when we participate in communion, we remember his death, but we're remembering also his life. Jesus lived like us. As Peter once preached, he went about with those feet, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we know by faith more than that, God was him, <laughs> that he was and is forever God and man, two natures together in one, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of an actual woman, Mary, a real person, not the queen of heaven, as some would say, but nonetheless, a real woman, Christ was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. He had flesh and bone. He was not a ghost, but a real, tangible man. We celebrate his life in the gospel because living, he incurred no debt at all against God, violated no commandment, but perfectly fulfilled every jot and tittle of the commandments in his life. When we read of Jesus in the gospel accounts, we're reading of a Savior who really lived on earth. Then he died, but we celebrate his life because he really lived again. We celebrate Jesus' life in the gospel. Now, there are many people this morning who end their celebration or admiration of Jesus right at that point. A willingness to acknowledge that Jesus, in fact, did live 2,000 years ago. And in our country, a Christian nation in many ways, at least to agree that the facts that we state about Jesus, that he was God but lived here as a man, willing to acknowledge that those things are true, even many other religions have no problem with that. But what sets us apart this morning is that in the gospel, we don't only celebrate the life of Jesus, but we celebrate the death of Jesus also. Because the life of Jesus without the death of Jesus would do nothing for us at all. Had Jesus simply lived even a perfect life, even as God on our very earth, but not also died at the end of that journey, it would be like a great massive ship in grandeur, gilded on every part, sailing across us on a cold sea as we drown, and just sailing by, and we could see it. We could be amazed by the beauty of the vessel, and then we drown. The death of Jesus is the man who jumps off the ship into the water to take hold of us and pull us aboard. 
The life of Jesus without the death of Jesus at the end of it only increases the condemnation of those who are perishing. It only shows us the perfect example of everything we should have been and then leaves us to drown. It is the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, not just the, the life, but the blood of Jesus that delivers us, that applies even the life of Jesus to us so that it means something in my life. Although we'll do a baptism next week, you could take a sinner like myself and dunk me 10,000 times into a baptismal and the water would do nothing without the blood of Jesus also applied. In this case, blood is thicker than water in that way. It is the blood of Jesus that, which symbolizes the death of Jesus that we need. I remember there is a young lady in this church who talked about when she first came here, one of the hymns that we were singing was William Cooper, his famous line, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. She thought that was a very strange song. What are we, vampires, that we're celebrating a fountain full of blood that we're being plunged into? We're not vampires. However, we do celebrate the blood of Jesus Christ. Without it, we have nothing. We're not interested only in some good moralistic teacher from the ancient Near East. We're interested in his life and his death applied to us. Without the blood of Jesus, it could never be. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the blood can be applied to the doorframe of our souls. And we can be delivered from all judgment. This idea... I bring before you because it is the primary point that John makes in our brief and a little bit cryptic text that we have today. So look with me in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This, Son of God from verse 5, Jesus, this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. As the Apostle John now lands the plane, so to speak, as he comes to the end of this letter, we are on this final section that goes down to verse 12. John has been cycling through three tests, love, morality, or, or righteousness, and doctrinal. And we are on final test here, doctrinal again, which will go down through verse 12. Really, after that, it's just conclusion. It's just some final remarks, very important, but they're just final remarks. So we're in the very last section of the main part of this letter all through this letter, every time John gets to a section on doctrine, and in other sections too, he has in the background, in his mind, clearly, a group of false teachers from his day. 
They were probably the ones who in chapter 2 went out from us but were not of us. So this was a group, as you remember, that had left the local fellowship John's writing to. They used to believe that Jesus was the Christ, Son of God, come from heaven, in the flesh, all of that. Then they changed their mind, left from the fellowship, and now were teaching a different Jesus, one who did not come in the flesh. This resulting error we now refer to as Gnosticism, which is kind of a group of beliefs that were popular in the first centuries of the church. It's almost certainly what these false teachers were holding to. We say that because it was a temptation for people in that day to hold a kind of Gnosticism because the Gnosticism was simply taking together ideas from Christianity about Jesus and blending them with ancient Greek philosophical thoughts. Thoughts that influence us but we don't hold with the same strength as they did in that day. So when you took Christianity and blended it together with Greek philosophical thought, it became very appealing to people at that time. Not so much to us today, a little different, we're in a different time, but it certainly was for them. And these false teachers were trying to blend Christianity and Christ together with Greek philosophical thought. And one of the consequences, surely, of that was that Jesus, for the false teachers, could not have died on the cross as God and man. Because Greek philosophic thought exalted spirit and thought very little of flesh or body. Separated those two. So the Gnostics, as far as we can tell, would admit that Jesus, at his baptism, received the nature of the heavenly Christ. The spirit, if you will, of God. Received at his baptism. So at that point, he was Jesus and he had the heavenly Christ upon him. But just before he died, they taught that the heavenly Christ, the spiritual part of Jesus, if you will, went back to heaven. So then just the mere human man, Jesus, died. Say, well, that's very odd. That is very odd. But it appealed at that time because you didn't want to think of Jesus as spirit dying on a cross. That was unthinkable to the Greek philosophic mind. Because spirit is too pure, too good, too holy for that. So all along, Jesus, John sorry, has been rebutting or contradicting these false teachers who very likely held this view that Jesus, the heavenly Christ upon him, certainly lived a good life, but you can't say that Christ died. Put in that light, this text begins to make a little bit more sense. Because at first it can be confusing. You put it in that light, it will make more sense. So what we're going to do now is simply look at the three witnesses that are given in this passage, one after the other. You have the water, you have the blood, you have the spirit. We'll conclude with the spirit and focus on the water and the blood here to try to understand what he's saying, given that background. So let's do that. Let's begin with the first two witnesses, the water and the blood. And You may be wondering, what is that about? Let's talk about that. Quote, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And of course, you can see in verses 7 and 8, John will say that the water is one of the three who bear witness or testify in agreement with the Holy Spirit about who Jesus really is. 
So the water is very significant. Jesus came by water and the water testifies to Jesus. But we have to ask the question, what water are we talking about right here? About 70% of our planet's surface is water. About 60% of your own body is water. So there's a lot of water that we are dealing with. When John speaks of water, what water is he talking about? He is not saying that you can go and put your ear to the ocean and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We kind of wish that were so. You will hear the glory of God in the roar of an ocean wave. But John doesn't have in mind the water at the beach. Notice John narrows what he means by water when he says right there at the beginning that Jesus Christ came by water. Clearly he has a specific sort of water in mind related to Jesus Christ's coming, which means from heaven to earth as a man, the incarnation. He came here on our planet by water. Some have thought that the water being referred to here is the water that poured out of Jesus' side on the cross after he had died when they had used a spear to stab him to ensure that he had died. And you remember that blood and water came out together. John chapter 19 verse 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. You can understand why that is an appealing way to understand this because in our passage we have blood and water. And really one of the only other times that the Apostle John in his writing refers to those together is right there in that verse. Blood and water coming from the side of Jesus. So some have taken this passage to be referring to that. Those bear witness to him. There is a problem with understanding the water to be the fluid that came out with the blood next to Jesus, proving that he was dead, although that was certainly a proof that he was dead. And that is, it makes no sense whatsoever of this line in our text, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. If he'd said it in reverse, not by the blood only, but by the blood and the water, proving Jesus was dead, that's what the water seemed to do in that case, then maybe that interpretation would make more sense to us, but he says it not that way. Clearly, John is thinking of the false teachers that he's contradicting, and he says, not by water only. We can assume rather safely that that's what was being taught, that Jesus had come only by water, whatever this water refers to, and there is no reason for us to guess at all that the Gnostics were somehow teaching that when they stabbed Jesus' side with the spear, water came out but no blood. We have no evidence that anybody ever taught that in the history of the world. So we are left with really another explanation, and the only other time that water plays a prominent role in Jesus' life is at his baptism. You recall that the very start of Jesus' public ministry was marked by his baptism in the Jordan River at the hand of John the Baptist. John had wanted to prevent Jesus from baptism because it was a baptism of repentance. And he's saying, Jesus, you have nothing to repent of. But you remember that Jesus said, no, 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 baptize me here so that I may fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus in his life had to fulfill all righteousness for us. He had to do what we would have to do given that circumstance, and we would need to undergo the baptism of repentance for our sins. So, though he has no sin, 
to fulfill all righteousness, he is baptized. But the baptism of Jesus actually plays a significant role in Jesus' whole earthly life and ministry, more than we often give it credit for. Let me read for you from Matthew's account just what happened when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If we take water in our passage to refer to the baptism of Jesus, which I think it does, we can understand why the water bears witness to the truth about Jesus. I mean, think just in Jesus' own baptism, there are two ways that the baptism itself proved Jesus to everyone. One is the easiest way, a literal, audible voice from heaven saying, that's my son. I'm pleased with him. <laughs> That's a very good proof to hear that out of heaven. It was heard again on the Mount of Transfiguration, which Peter recounted later in his letter as a, it's why we didn't follow myths or fables in believing in Christ. There were not only eyewitnesses, but earwitnesses who heard this from heaven. So the water bears witness, the baptism bears witness, there's a voice from heaven, but there's another way, significantly, that the baptism of Jesus, the water, bears witness to who Jesus is, the Son of God. And that is the descending of the Holy Spirit like a dove. You can ask me what exactly that looked like, and I'm not sure. Did he descend just looking like he was a dove? Or was there a vision of a descent that just reminded someone of how a dove would descend? I don't know. But the Spirit clearly at Jesus' baptism when he came up out of the water... The Spirit descended in a visible way. So not only do you have the audio, you have the video, you have the sight as well, proving that Jesus was the Son of God. The Spirit here is involved, just like it is in our text. He is, sorry, in our text. And I think that's why in verse 8, John actually reverses the order, if you notice that. Because he talks about the water, the blood, and then he mentions the Spirit. But then in verses 7 and 8, he reverses the order and starts with the Spirit. I think it's because in the water and the blood, the Spirit is involved in proving Jesus in both of those. But you see that certainly here in John chapter 1. You say, how is the Spirit's descent a proof? If he looked like a bird, maybe people just thought he was a bird. Actually, John chapter 1, John the Baptist said that the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus was the sign that God had given him to look out for, to prove clearly to him who the Christ was. John chapter 1 says, quote, And John bore witness, here's what he said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John says, I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this is God, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the Christ we've been waiting for. John the Baptist says, and I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The water bore witness historically 
to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God because at his baptism there was a voice from heaven, there was the Spirit descending upon him, proving to John so that John could thus declare to everyone what he does right there. This is the Son of God. Now when the Spirit descended on Jesus, he at that moment appears to equip Jesus, anoint Jesus, equip Jesus for all of the ministry Jesus would do. So all of the signs that later on prove Jesus, all the miraculous things he does that draw a crowd, that confirm that the Holy Spirit and that God, they're at work in his life, all of that starts right here at his baptism. That's when the Spirit descends on him and remains on him to equip him as a man he needed that equipping as a man to live a perfect and powerful life. This is why Peter could say in one of his sermons, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. To Peter's mind, that happened, I think, at the baptism. So I think that for the Apostle John in our text, when he says that Jesus came by water, and that the water bears witness to the facts about Jesus, proves him to be the Son of God, to be who he is. I think in John's mind is primarily the baptism of Jesus with its proofs, but is probably more than that. It's the fact that the baptism marked the beginning of Jesus' powerful outward public ministry. So we could think of the water in this text as referring to Jesus' life, to all of the proofs, because every miracle Jesus did was done in the power of the Holy Spirit, with, which, with whom he was anointed at his baptism. To say that Jesus came by water, therefore, would be to say that Jesus there was baptized and actually lived on our earth. Keep that in your mind. Let's move to the second witness, which is the blood. Because so far what we've said about the water about Jesus relating to the water, none of the false heretical teachers opposing John would disagree with. They had no problem with Jesus living and they believed the heavenly Christ descended upon him at the baptism. Therefore, John adds and emphasizes a second witness. He came by water and blood. This is he who came by water and blood. I don't think I have to convince you that blood everywhere in the New Testament, refers symbolically to the death of Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. If the water refers in some sense to Jesus' life, the blood refers to Jesus' death. Jesus came, did both of those, lived and died. To John, the death of Jesus is part of what proves that Jesus is from God. And probably in the blood, in the death of Jesus, we should include what came afterward, the resurrection. To John, the death of Jesus proves the divinity of Jesus in a similar way that the baptism did. You say, how so? How does the blood or the death of Jesus testify that he is truly the Son of God? Well, if I could just take you back 2,000 years and remind you of the events surrounding the death of Jesus. There before he died, when he was still hung upon the cross, there were three hours of darkness at midday. There was Jesus' gracious bearing like a sheep silent before his shearers. And there was his own voluntary choice to die. No one took his life from him. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and dies. And then when he does die upon the cross in that unusual way, Matthew tells us that these signs occurred. Quote, 
And behold, the curtain of the temple, not a thin one, it's a thick one, was torn in two from top to bottom. So you know no person did that. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, they died, were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the Holy Spirit, Holy City, sorry, and appeared to many. They were resurrected as soon as he died. They appeared after his resurrection to many, along with earthquake, along with a ripping of the veil. And this was enough for the Roman guard, the centurion who was in charge of putting Jesus to death. It was sufficient to convince him and the people around him of this. Truly, this was the Son of God. That's what he said. When he saw the signs that took place at the death of Jesus. So the blood, the death of Jesus, bore witness to the truth about Jesus. I'd say, this is a tricky passage, putting all of this together. Yeah, but if you don't think of it that way, there's hardly another way to make sense of what he says in the rest of verse 6, the second part. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Knowing the Gnostic background knowing the heresies common at that time, that almost certainly his own enemies were holding to and preaching, keeping those in our mind, seeing water as referring to Jesus' life, his ministry starting with his baptism, seeing blood as referring to his death. Now this line makes sense. So I know we've had to work hard to get here, but I hope you can see that this line now makes sense to you. Why should the Apostle John emphasize that Jesus did not just come by water, but he also came by blood? Because his Gnostic enemies were teaching, yes, at his baptism and in his powerful ministry, the heavenly Christ was upon him. That was Jesus Christ, the Christ upon him, human Jesus with the Christ, but not at his death. Because just before his death, the Spirit the heavenly Christ departs. And John is saying, no. He came by the water and the self-same Jesus Christ, Son of God, came by the blood. The one you saw baptized, confirmed by a voice from heaven with the Spirit upon him, is the exact same one who died upon the cross. You cannot separate the water from the blood. Or to put it in other terms, you cannot separate the life of Jesus from the death of Jesus. John is making the point that they have to go together. He'll make it again in verses 7 and 8 when he says, For there are three that testify. The Spirit, because he's involved in both. We'll see more of that in a second. And the water and the blood. And these three do not contradict each other. The water and the blood, they agree. Same Jesus and those events testify to him as the Son of God. You cannot separate the water and the blood. They are joint witnesses. The same God-man in both instances. In other words, John is not going to allow an admiration or appreciation for Jesus in his lifetime, which at this early date when this is written, people certainly appreciated the life of Jesus, even if you hated him. It was very difficult, even for his most ardent opponents, to deny that he had done very amazing things. There were lame people walking around Jerusalem. It's 
difficult to explain that. So there were people who admired Jesus' life and had various explanations for how he did what he did and yet denied the most important point, the death of Jesus. It was a stumbling block to the Jewish people and it was foolishness to the Greeks, including the Gnostic Greeks. It was foolishness to them that Jesus as Christ, as God, would die upon the cross. Therefore, they reinterpreted it. Now, at this point, you might be a bit relieved because you say, I've never met a Gnostic in my life. <laughs> you probably haven't. They actually don't technically exist anymore, real genuine Gnostics. They died away in the early centuries after the time of Jesus. So we can all be very grateful for that. However, the spirit of Gnosticism really never died away. It recurs every generation or two probably every generation in some form. So there's no official Gnostic today. You say, why do I need this passage? I don't deny this, and I don't know anyone who denies this. Yes, you do. You know a lot of people who need to hear the words of verse 6, actually. Just think about it this way. The world today still wants to separate the water and the blood when it comes to Jesus. There is a wide, broad acceptance of the life of Jesus, what we're referring to as the water, there is a broad acceptance among many religions and religious persons and irreligious persons across the world who, when you mention the name of Jesus, will think of his life and will approve of many of the things they find there. There are many who admire, for example, the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. They would find those to be admirable. One, of course, of them would be Mahatma Gandhi, the late Hindu liberator of India, Gandhi said in a letter, quote, I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. Gandhi separated the water and the blood. Gandhi did not have a problem acknowledging Jesus in his life as powerful in his teaching, one of the greatest teachers of mankind. But he said, I cannot go beyond that. Go beyond that where? To the death of Jesus being the only sufficient sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Gandhi could accept the one and not the other. And John says, Jesus did not just come by the water. He didn't just come to teach powerfully, to live powerfully. He also came by the blood. Not the water only, but by the blood. You could take another example, for example, from Islam and the Quran, which in the fourth surah, because the Quran and Islam acknowledge Jesus as a great prophet, one of the greatest, the second greatest behind Muhammad. So they acknowledge Isa, born of Miriam. But the fourth surah of the Quran says, The Jews neither killed nor crucified him. It was only made to appear so. Even those who argue for this crucifixion are in doubt. They have no knowledge whatsoever, only making assumptions. They certainly did not kill him. Rather, Allah raised him up to himself. And there's debate what that means. But clearly, Islamic teaching on Jesus is we accept the water. We accept that he is a prophet anointed by God to be a prophet. They would view our scriptures as having a problem. But when it came to Jesus himself, the water, no problem. The blood, it never happened. It never happened. And there's various explanations, swoon theory and other things to explain that away. But they do not accept the blood. They do not accept the death of Jesus as the only sufficient sacrifice. 
that Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. No. No. Now, we could keep pointing our fingers everywhere else. It's a common view. Jesus' goodness, teaching, and life didn't really do what he said he did on the cross. But we could also point our fingers toward ourselves as Christians, as believers, because we are actually tempted to do the very same thing, to separate water and blood, life and death in Jesus. Think about it in your own experience, how oftentimes it is easier for you to see and acknowledge and appreciate and feel condemned by at times the perfect example that you have in Jesus. That he's someone who loved others when we see him extend his clean, pure hand to touch the filthy skin of the leper. Our heart is moved and we feel, ah, how could we ever live up to that standard of love? Here is a person perfect in his holiness. We love it. We should. He came by water, powerful in his ministry, anointed by God of the Holy Spirit. We love his teachings. We love his works. And then we look at our life and go, I can't live up to it. <laughs> Just like Mike said here, I can't live up to it, so I can't come to him. Or if I can come to him, it's not today, because I'm not doing so great today. It'll have to be another day. You lose heart. Well, where's the blood? <laughs> where's the blood? I see the water. I see the acknowledgement in your life of the power of Jesus. You admire him. You respect him. You love him. Where's the blood? It's not there to cover the sins that you committed today. It's not sufficient to fully atone for your sins so that you are on your worst day reconciled to God. No penalty box for the Christian. But where's the blood? There's the water. Where's the blood? Where is your faith? Where is your reaching out your own leprous hand and taking hold of the death of Jesus Christ for you today? You remember how, I'm not a prophet, I didn't see into anything, but you remember how on your way to church today you did whatever you did? You yelled at your kids, you did that thing, okay? Or just the taint remaining from the week. It's sticking to you and you feel like a Christian, but not much of a Christian. You're glad to be here in worship. You're a little distracted in the music. And you're just hoping to stir yourself up, to get to that next level, to be a, one of the real, authentic Christians like the other ones around you. Where's the blood? Where's the blood? Isn't the blood sufficient to make you a real, authentic Christian every day? Isn't it an eternal redemption? Not just a little thing that applies when you first come to Christ, but sufficient for today, sufficient for the sins you committed this week. Do not separate the water from the blood. That is John's appeal. And I know we're not in a Gnostic context, but that's the same appeal to us today. Jesus did not come by water only. So love is example and love is teachings. Of course we do. But do not forget he came by water and by blood. It is the only way that we can really appreciate his life without feeling a great condemnation about our own lives. Without the blood, the water would just drown us. What God has joined together, do not separate. Now, as I'm getting closer to the end of this message and you're thinking, wow, we've only covered about one verse. <laughs> I've left the Spirit as the third one who bears witness here to the end. Because the Spirit is all throughout this passage, and we've spoken of the Spirit previously in John, the Spirit who guides us to the truth. 
We saw it in chapter 2 where John says, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. We saw it later in that chapter. His anointing teaches you about everything and is no lie. That helps explain what we see in our text. For example, in the rest of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Like we've already said, here's the life of Jesus in the water. Here's the death of Jesus in the blood. But for that to mean anything at all to you, besides just historical data, the Holy Spirit has to be involved in bearing witness. And like I said, I think that's why the Spirit is put first when he gives the list there afterward. The Spirit and the water and the blood because the Spirit is the one. You weren't there at the baptism of Jesus. And as amazing as his death was, you weren't there either. It's the Spirit who takes the water and the blood and through the preached word drives it plunges it deep into your heart so that it's not just data. The Spirit has to bear witness, and He always does it, note, with the water and the blood. There's no universal Spirit out there working in people, doing great, amazing things apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not happening. It is the Spirit taking the gospel message and plunging it into the heart of people who otherwise would not receive it. He bears witness. He convinces us so that we can die for this gospel. He makes it solid in our heart and in our mind. That's why when I preach a message like this about Jesus and say He is the Son of God and you should trust Him, my confidence is not in me. Notice when you get to the end of our text, He says, if we receive the testimony of men. Now some of you, this wouldn't be true maybe, <laughs> won't look at you, and others it would, perhaps just on my own credibility, just because you maybe trust me as a person, you'd be willing to accept my testimony about Jesus. But it wouldn't be enough for you to die on that basis. You weren't there 2,000 years ago. It just wouldn't be enough. So many people think differently about religion and God and everything. There are so many non-Christians and even among Christians, so many in cults, so many who hold different views about Jesus. So who are we to say this is the truth about Jesus? I wouldn't dare do it. You wouldn't dare believe it if the Holy Spirit was not one of the three who testifies with our spirit concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You're not receiving this on the basis of my testimony. I'm nobody. We're nobody here. But you might even receive it just on my testimony. Well, how much more? That's what he says, verse 9. If you'd receive this on the basis of my testimony, listen, the Holy Spirit, who is God, is testifying now. And the testimony of God is greater it's an understatement. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. You say, I didn't hear the voice from heaven. But you hear the Holy Spirit. Not audibly, but taking the truth of the water and the blood and driving it into your heart. I can see it in your lives. You can see it in your lives. The surprising things that have happened. Your love for the gospel. The transformation that's happened. How you've put off old sins and put on new habits of holiness. Not perfectly, but characteristically. It's because the Spirit has borne witness concerning Jesus Christ. Taken the truth. Driven it deep into your heart. So all of us here, certainly, as we come to a conclusion, should, and we do, admire the example of Jesus. There's no one like him. 
No one spoke like him. His teaching is remarkable. Go on loving it. I'm not saying don't do that. But remember that the life of Jesus, starting at the water of baptism, had always as its purpose the blood of Jesus at the end of that three-year journey. None of us can live up to his example as much as we admire it. But that's why we need not just water, we need blood. And may the Spirit prove powerful in all of us in taking those facts of the gospel that we already know. And whether it be in communion when we remember it or during our week when we do the same, taking the water and the blood, which these came out of Jesus' heart, but may the Spirit take them and drive them into your heart to deeply, truly, solidly believe the testimony of God concerning His Son.